Well, how many are ready for the Word of God this morning? Amen. Let's just pray, and, uh, and then we'll get into the Word this morning. I'm actually doing something kind of different than what I normally do, but that's all good. Father, I thank you for this day, and I thank you, O oh God, for your presence that is in this place. And I thank you, Lord, for uh, your Word that is alive, and it's living, and it's active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and has the ability to divide whatever is of the soulish realm, my mind, my will, and my emotions from the truth of the Word of God. And so, Father, we pray today that your Word would pierce our hearts as truth, and that it would transform us today, and it would set us on a course towards the plan and purposes of God for our life. We thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. And everyone said this morning, amen, amen. Amen. In the seven-year history of our church, every once in a while, I have felt the need to respond to a cultural or social issue of our day. Um, At times, I responded as a shepherd to God's flock. At times, I responded as a leader to concerned citizens. Uh, At times, I responded as a father to spiritual sons and daughters. Um, And as a time, I responded as a Christian with a profound sense of urgency for our day. Today, I want to say to you, I'm going to respond with all four things in mind. Um, Furthermore, I want you to know today that today's message uh, is not a knee-jerk reaction to the Supreme Court decision. It's not a knee-jerk reaction to the sex ed curriculum that's coming out in Ontario uh, in September. It is also not a knee-jerk reaction to Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner and all the gender confusion that's going on in our culture. Um, But I do believe that my role is important. Uh, I believe my role as a spiritual leader in this city and as a spiritual leader over this house, uh, it's very important that you hear from me, um, not just about these issues that are prevalent in our culture, but also hear what God's heart is on these subjects. Um, I'm not going to get into a ton of detail today, but what I really felt to do was to share some reflections that I have taken in over the last number of months uh, in relation to all of these things. So, um, as I said, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm not going to get into a passage of Scripture and kind of, you know, pick it apart and tell you about what the Bible means in that particular area. What I'm going to do today is share my heart as a pastor, if that's okay with you. Okay. The prophet Isaiah, uh, who was one of the major prophets, for those that know their Bible, uh, they know that there was a bunch of major prophets and minor prophets, five major prophets. Isaiah was one of the major prophets that had uh, expanded ministry over 40 years. And in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 4, and we're going to see it on the screen behind me, it's making a declaration of a day that was yet to come. And I believe that Isaiah is prophesying about 2015. Okay? It starts off by saying, Arise, shine. For your light has come. And I always think to myself, okay, who's he talking to? Well, he's not talking to the world. He's talking to the church. He's saying, you arise. What is he saying arise from? Arise from your slumber. Arise from that place of apathy. Arise from your place of complacency. Arise and shine for the light of the glory of God has come upon you. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, I don't know if this is going to ring true to anyone today. The darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. Does that make sense? But the Lord will arise over the earth. No. No, the Lord will arise over the government. 
No. The Lord will arise over you. And his glory will be seen upon you. How many want that? Okay. So do I. I read verses like that. I'm like, bring it on, Lord. That's what I want. Verse 3, it says, The Gentiles shall come to your light. For those that don't know some of the translations of the Bible, Gentiles were any nation that was apart from God. Kind of sounds like Canada and the U.S. and almost every other nation on the planet. It says, The nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. For those that are believing for their kids to come back to Christ, this is a promise for you. And your daughters shall be nursed at your side. I don't know about you, but over the last several years, really over the last specifically several months, I have, I have literally read every article, every blog, every uh, book, and every print media that I could get my hands on to understand the changing, shifting uh, culture and what's happening in our world in 2015. I've listened to and watched interviews. I've seen podcasts. I've seen reports. I've studied and looked into all these things, and I've desperately tried to see it from a biblical worldview. And so... I've also done my best to answer your questions. I know several of you have been asking me questions over the last number of months saying, so what do we do with this? And how do, how do we deal with this situation? And how do we, how do we you know, respond to people that are asking us about this? Or how do we respond to people that say that, that to disagree with something means you're a hater, you're a bigot? How do we respond to that? What do we do? Well, I've tried to answer your questions. I've tried to sympathize with you. I've done the best I can to challenge your biblical understanding and your biblical foundations. And what I want to share with you this morning is, is two things very simply. I want to share with you some thoughts that I have regarding the world in which we live, and I want to share with you some thoughts regarding the response of the church. And my hope today is that you get to the end of this and not be discouraged or not feel like the sky is falling or that the world is over but I want you to see the significant place that you have in history. All of heaven is sitting on the edge of their seats watching what the church is going to do. Think about that for a second. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm thankful in this day that, that you know, we still have religious freedom and we have the freedom of expression and, and uh, you know, I can make people cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs because I'm the pastor of this church. It's amazing how that happens. I can brainwash you into believing that blue and white are the best colors on the planet. There is no other colors, um, hence why I'm wearing blue. Anyhow, that's good. But I want to say to you this morning, about 2,000 years ago, there was a man by the name of John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. But in his life, he actually challenged one of the government officials, namely the king, uh, with what God's definition of marriage was. And he lost his head. So let's not lose our heads over this whole situation, okay? Let's, let's, not, let's not act or come at this situation uh, with, uh, if I can say it like this, let's not think about it and freak out and lose our mind over this situation, okay? So five things I just want to share very briefly about what the world has come to. And I wanted to share my thoughts. I want to share them in statements. Feel free to take it. Feel free to do whatever you want with it. 
feel free to look into some of these thoughts and study for yourself. But the first thought I want to share with you this morning is simply this. You cannot redefine what you didn't create. You can't redefine what you didn't create. Any more than I can come up to someone who's created an, an innovation and tell them how to redo it because I didn't create it. I wouldn't know how to fix it. I don't know how to fix a problem if I didn't create it. If I don't have the instruction manual and I wasn't one that wrote it, therefore I can't redefine it. I don't know if any of that just makes basic sense to you. But you cannot redefine what you didn't create. The popular hashtag after the Supreme Court decision a couple weeks ago was love wins. Love wins. The President of the United States actually tweeted it the moment after the, the decision came down. He tweeted, love wins, and then of course they... They did the rainbow colors on the White House, and we saw kind of the, the effect of that. Um, but if I can be so bold this morning, love didn't win. Love was redefined. So in their version of love, love wins. But in the definition of love, love actually lost. And I want to say to you this morning, I, I had a, a friend of mine in the church that I grew up in. And one day, over a period of time, he made the decision to have an affair with his sister-in-law. Now, our first reaction is, man, that's sick. But he could easily, he could easily decry, hey, love wins, right? Love wins. Because I, lo- I love someone, so I, I went ahead and acted out my feelings, and I acted out my thoughts because love wins. The problem is, is if love wins apart from a moral code, we have chaos. And what we're producing in our culture right now is nothing short of a chaotic redefinition of all the foundational elements of our core being as humans on the planet. So if we're redefining that, what we're doing now is we're recreating and redefining a world that is far from the place God had intended it to be. Love, if I can be so bold this morning, love was created by God, right? Therefore, God defines what love is. Marriage was created by God. Therefore, God defines what marriage is. Somebody's got to be excited, but this is good stuff. All three of you agree. Okay, this is good. The Bible says that we are created by God in his image. Male and female, he created us. Therefore, God is the only one that defines who we are. We cannot redefine what we did not create or establish. I want to I say to you this morning, because I, I want to give away the scheme of the enemy. The scheme or the plan of the enemy is to redefine morality so that you can be stuck in your sin. And the Bible says that the only way God can work on your situation is if you repent. In other words, if you have a change of heart and a change of mind and a change of attitude, and you go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. When you repent, it opens the door of the Holy Spirit in your life to bring freedom and to set you free from the bondage of sin. The enemy's goal is to misdefine sin so that you don't have to repent. So if, if it's a condition or if it's a sickness and you don't have to repent, guess what? You can go on with your life and think that it's okay because I've put coping mechanisms in my life, and I've got coping mechanisms and coping mechanisms, and I've got friends that agree with me. I got, I'm just going to let you know, you'll find people that will agree with you. It doesn't take very much to find them, okay? But you have to understand, the heart of God is for your freedom. 
The heart of God is that you're not bound by the things of this world. The heart of God is that you experience the best of what his love was designed to give you, which is the freedom that you can only find in Christ Jesus. So the enemy is redefining and misdefining issues of sin. Here's my second thought. Are you ready for this one? You can't change surgically what God established biologically. Um, And I'm actually not going to share too many thoughts on this. I'm actually going to quote you from Dr. Paul McHugh, who's the former psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland, who was the chief of staff for psychiatry for a number of years, who is not a Christian, just so you know, in case you think I'm biased. I am biased towards certain hockey teams. Okay, but are you ready for this? Here's what he says. He's given overwhelming feedback uh, that transgenderism is a mental disorder that merits treatment and that sex change is biologically impossible and that people who promote sexual reassignment surgery are collaborating with and promoting a mental disorder. Listen to me. He goes on to say, these policymakers and government officials and the media are doing no favors either to the public or the transgendered by treating their confusions as a right in need of defending rather than as a mental disorder that deserves understanding, treatment, and prevention. This intensely felt sense of being transgendered constitutes a mental disorder in two aspects. The first is that the idea of sex misalignment is simply mistaken. It does not correspond with physical reality. The second is that it can lead to grim psychological outcomes. He goes on to say the transgender person's disorder is in the person's assumption that they are different than the physical reality of their body. Their maleness or femaleness as assigned by nature. It is a disorder similar to a dangerously thin person suffering anorexia who looks in the mirror and thinks they are overweight. He concludes by saying sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate and promote a mental disorder. That was Dr. Paul McHugh from Johns Hopkins University Hospital, who was the expert in psychiatry at that hospital and was the chief staff of psychiatry for a number of years. What am I saying? The Bible is very clear. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. I don't know about you, but the word that's being constantly used about gender confusion right now, or gender, anything, is confusion. Um, there's actually a video that you can watch on YouTube called Genderbred Person. Not gingerbread, genderbred person. And this was a video that was shown to the Toronto District School Board High Schools a month ago. Or two, I guess it'd be about a month and a half ago. When did we see the sex seminar? Was it about a month ago? So maybe it was about two months ago. It was shown in the Toronto District School Board. Uh, and this is what our kids are getting told. That you can be male, yet feel female, and respond female, and you can have all these different things. And it basically tears it down so you have somewhere between six and eight genders. Last time I checked, there's only two. I mean, I'm not that smart, but last time I checked, there is only two. And God said there's only two. Therefore, if God says there's only two, there's only two. 
All right. Are you ready for my third thought? Are you ready for a deep revelation of God? I just want you to sitting down, sitting down, right? Sitting down, because this is going to be a deep revelation. Are you ready for this? Swimmers swim, and sinners sin. (laughs) What am I saying? Are you ready for this? Why do we expect non-Christians to act like Christians? Or hold to Christian values? Or fight for God's viewpoint on marriage? Or wait until marriage before they have sex? Or stop smoking weed? Or stop fighting to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes? Or blah, 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 blah. Sinners sin. That's what they do. And I can say it right now. The sinners who are sinning are sinning a lot more professionally than church people are living like church people. So the issue is not that sinners sin. It's the issue is that the church isn't churching. Look it up in the dictionary, and my face will be right beside that word, churching. Okay? It's there. I'm sure it's there. Worldly people act worldly because that's what they are. Okay? The church of the living God is supposed to act like the living God. Amen? So, I want to just encourage you with something here, because obviously we understand that lost people act lost. That's just how it is. I don't know about you men that don't ever like to ask for directions, but when you're lost, you're really lost. Just ask your wife. She'll tell you where you are. It's all good. It's all good. And all the wives said? Okay, that's good. I got support. I want to say something to you today because we need to hear this. The Supreme Court and the Ontario government can do many things, but they can't put Jesus back in the tomb. Let's believe together that Jesus is alive and he's head of the church and he's in you. And the same resurrection power that rose Jesus from the dead dwells within you. And I also don't know about you, but Christ conquering death is much more impressive than nine people in black robes making a decision or three people working on a set of curriculum for the Ontario Education Plan for the sex ed. Far more impressive than what nine people in black robes can do, or three people, one of which is now in jail for child pornography, by the way, um, can do in Ontario. And yes, we should be excited about the sex ed curriculum because we've got a, we've got a child pornographer <laughs> that's now in jail who wrote, co-wrote that material. That should speak to us. Are you ready for the next one? Fourth, our cultural opponents are not our enemies. They're our mission field. We will not, I want to say this, we will not win them by compromising biblical truth, but we're also not going to win them by despising them and hating them. The church has always been involved in a mission that is beyond our ability to do it. What God asks you to do as believers is beyond your capacity, right? Which is why we need God. I don't know about you, but we can't raise people from the dead, make the blind see, uh, make a lost person saved, and we can't heal the sick, but we can through Christ. We can through Christ. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So I want to encourage you today, don't, look, don't think defeated, don't think hopeless thoughts, It's not going to work. 
Let's just believe God today that God's going to use the church like the same way he's always used the church to transform the world, and he's going to use it again. And we're going to be a part of it. Amen? Fifth thought is this. We have to recognize what has changed. So many Christians walk around in denial of what the world is actually like. Well, you know, it's just not that bad. No, it is, actually. Well, you know, you know, and there's always an excuse for everything. Listen, we have to recognize what is going on. Uh, A couple things that have changed. Number one, the moral landscape has changed. The common cultural understanding of marriage and gender has changed. The threats to religious freedom has changed. The era of cultural Christianity has come to an end. We are growing up in a generation now, everybody pretty much under the age of 40 that did not grow up in Sunday school, did not go to vacation Bible school, did not have church as their upbringing. They don't know anything. Proof of that was one of our first couple months starting the church seven years ago. Sandra was in with the kids ministry, teaching all the kids, and she starts talking about Noah and the ark. And they're like, we had a whole bunch of kids in there. And they're like, who? Uh, Noah, you know, the guy, the big beard, built a really big boat called an ark. What? Never heard of that before. Then she's like, um, Evan Almighty? Okay. You know, it's like you're going down the story of Moses and, and crossing the Red Sea with the nation of Israel. Prince of Egypt? No, that was 18 years ago, so that doesn't work anymore. The reality is, is we are living in a generation that are post-Christian. They did not grow up with Christian values. They did not grow up with an understanding of a biblical worldview. This is why this stuff is foreign to them. So we can't get, in a sense, mad at them or angry at them because they don't understand. Right? We're good. So, what does the response of the church need to be? Are you ready for this? You guys are awake. Here, stand up for a second. Stand up, stand up, stand up. We're all sleeping today. Do some stretching. Stretch. Pat the person beside you. Pat the person that you just, on the other side there. Okay, have a seat. Here we go. First point of what the church needs to do. Are you ready for this? The church is and has always been countercultural. Whether it was Joseph in Potiphar's house, whether it was Israel under Pharaoh's rule, whether it was Daniel and his friends facing trials in Babylon, whether it was the early Christians under the rule of Rome, whether it was Christians in the Middle Ages, whether it was Christians in the underground church in China today, we have always been countercultural. And if I can say this morning, I believe being countercultural actually helps us more than it hurts us. Sometimes we, we hear that and we go, well, that's not good because then we won't be relatable to them. And we get into this thinking that, this thinking that tells us In order to be missional, we have to become so much like them that we actually act like them. The reality is, is we're supposed to be missional, and we're supposed to relate to them, and we're supposed to speak to them in a way that they're going to understand, but in no way means or anything are we supposed to live like them, act like them, or behave like them. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to live and act like Jesus, kind of like the mission statement of this church, live like Jesus and love like Jesus. The church is at its best when we offer an alternative to the darkness of the world, not a watered-down version of pseudo-Christianity. The church will be at its best. I don't know about you, but I've noticed something in the last 10, 15 years that some viewpoints or some cultural ideas 
that have become very normal up till about 25 years ago no longer exist. We're not that far removed from the times when biblical worldview and Judeo-Christian foundations in our culture and our ethics and in our integrity were the norm for our society. But it doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen. But I want to encourage you, we're supposed to be countercultural, so don't be discouraged by that. The second thing is this. The early church never looked to the government for guidance. Just my observations. You can take it, leave it, you can do whatever you want with it. But the early church never looked to the government for guidance. Jesus didn't invite the government to change their ways. He invited them to a relationship with himself. Okay? Um, Paul came before the government many times, but if you look in the book of Acts, he never once said, you need to change your laws. And if you change your laws, then you'll come to God. No, he actually said, no, just come to Jesus. When put before the Sanhedrin, he said, come to Jesus. Put before the King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. What's the, what are you going to say? Come to Jesus. Meet my friend Jesus. He's the answer to everything. Okay? When Paul was in prison, he didn't ask the government to release him. He just decided to write letters of the love of Jesus from prison. So he wasn't looking for the government for guidance. I believe Paul wanted to be known more for what he was for than what he was against. Why? Because he understood that at the end of the day, the government couldn't solve the life problems that he saw in the world. The only one who could solve it was God. So I'm not saying don't vote strategically in the next election. You should vote strategically in the next election. You should prayerfully vote. Should you make your concerns known at your school with the sex ed curriculum? Absolutely, because the first introductory, first 18 pages of that introduction gives parents the right and the flexibility to ask what they're going to do in that classroom. So take your legal right as a parent and protect your children and find out what's going on. Don't just assume that they're going to do this or assume they're going to do that. Find out what your school teachers are going to teach your children because you have the legal right according to the sex ed curriculum as parents. But does that mean that we're going to stand and picket in front of the city hall for the rest of our life and quit our jobs and picket, picket, picket? No, what we're going to do is live it, 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 live it. Because when we live it, live it, live it, live it, God's going to get it, get it, get it, get it. Do you know what I'm saying? They're going to get them. Because people are going to be so transformed by what Jesus has done in our hearts that they're going to realize there's an alternative to this craziness called our world, and it's Jesus. So we don't have to be worried about what the government does. We don't have to be worried about what the world does. The world is actually acting like they should be. They're acting worldly. The government is acting like they should be, which is worldly. Lost people act lost. That's just how it goes. C, you want, you want my next thought? Okay. Bitterness, frustration, and hopelessness are not fruit of the Spirit. I don't have anything deep to share this morning. I'm just sharing my thoughts, okay? I've, I've heard it all. I've heard all the thoughts, the comments. The, I've heard all the editorials. I've watched all the news. I, I've listened to all these things, and I just keep coming back to the same kind of core thoughts. Bitterness, frustration, and hopelessness are not fruit of the Spirit. I want to announce to you today, this guy's not falling. The church thrives 
when it is in stark contrast to the world. Do you believe that this morning? The early church lived in a day when immorality was rampant, yet they turned the world upside down without the use of the internet. Okay? Be light in the darkness, be the salt of the earth, be filled with hope because the best days of the church are coming quickly. The best days of the church are coming. So how should we respond? Well, I I think we have to respond with consistency in connection to our beliefs and our identity in Christ. That's first and foremost. Second thing is this, we shouldn't panic and we shouldn't overreact or we shouldn't be fearful. God's on your side. If God's on our side, who can be against us? Right? I think what we are going to start to experience is some genuine persecution that this nation has never felt or been through before. But if you've ever been on the mission field, or you know anybody that's been on the mission field, to a country that has a a Muslim country, or a communist country, or a foreign country where Jesus is not lifted up or not worshipped, the persecution that those people deal with is beyond, sometimes beyond uh, description. Especially in China. So we're going to start to actually experience some things that are actually going to make us either the stronger believer that we're believing for or it'll cause us to run away. But I'll tell you right now, I believe what's going to happen is God is going to solidify our foundation and he's going to anchor us to himself and we're going to stand. How else should we respond? Well, we need to balance humility and holiness. We need to balance truth and love. We need to balance conviction and compassion. We need to embrace our identity, as 1 Peter chapter 2 says. We need to embrace our identity as foreigners and strangers in this world. Because that's who we are. Our, uh, Sandra, when she was younger, she had moved all over the place so many times that when people came to her and said, where are you from? And she would jokingly say, my citizenship is not of this world. Because <laughs> she doesn't really know where she's from. She's from all over the place. She's been everywhere. She was born in Tanzania, raised by Finnish parents, lived in Sweden, been to Canada, been to 37 countries as a missionary by the time she was 20. So where's home? Heaven. And that's how we have to think. This is not our home. This is just our cottage vacation time. (laughs) Fourth thought, are you ready for this one? Believers believe. Sinners sin, believers. That's deep. I felt like some people were just like, whoa. I've got to write that down. I'm telling you, it was deep. It was deep. In other words, solidify your thinking according to the Bible. Solidify it. If you've never been a student of the Bible, get into the Bible and read it. Get into it. Study it. Take Bible college courses. There's a bunch of stuff online that you can take basic doctrine courses to get that, the, the, the foundation of your faith solidified and secured. Pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Pray for an awakening of the Holy Spirit in our city and in our country. Pray and defend your faith with wisdom and sensitivity under the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach the truth in love. Make your life a living testimony of God in your life. Make your marriage a testimony of God's love in your life. Make your family a testimony of God's love in your life. Make your relationships a testimony of God's love in your life. Make your integrity a testimony of God's love in your life to others. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 13 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against Pierce Morgan. Oh, sorry, does that say that? Oh, I didn't say that, sorry. Our struggle is not against Pierce Morgan, the Supreme Court, the Ontario government, your municipal government, or anyone else in government, anyone else in the education system. Our, our enemy is not Kathleen Wynne. And our enemy is not Stephen Harper. And our enemy is not Barack Obama. And our enemy, well, there's other things that I debate that, but that's not our enemy. Our enemy, his name is Satan. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that you, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, God wants us to stand up and be counted for in this day and to declare to the city that Jesus is still on the throne. And no matter what is going on in our culture, no matter what is being declared, or no matter what decisions are being made, God is still on the throne. And when someone backs you into a corner and gets you cornered into this argument about this, that, or the other thing, then our response needs to be just like Martin Luther from a number of years ago. And he responded by looking at his accusers and simply said this, unless you prove to me by Scripture and plain reason that I'm wrong, I cannot and will not recant. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. There is nothing else I can do. God help me. Amen. That's our response. It's that simple. Here's my fifth thought. In the midst of change, remember what hasn't changed. The reign of the risen Christ has not changed. The word of God has not changed. The authority of God's word has not changed. The mission of Christ to save sinners has not changed. The gospel of God's grace has not changed. The cost of Christian discipleship has not changed. In the midst of all of this change, remember that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trust him to know that he is true to his word, for he is who he says he is. I don't know about you, but one of the most frustrating type or group of people I've ever encountered in my life, are people that constantly waver their opinion, their thoughts, their ideas, depending upon who's around them. Anyone else feel that? It's like one day it's like, that's the answer. The next day it's this answer. The day after that, it's that answer. I'm like, like it's ridiculous. I'm thankful today that God has never changed. He loves us with an everlasting love. He has a grace and mercy in our life that we cannot comprehend. I want to end this morning with a, a, just a passage of Scripture that I know James shared a couple of months ago, and it really was the theme, and it is the theme for this church, and it's the theme for my life personally. It's Matthew 5, verses 13 to 15. And while I'm doing this, I'm just going to invite those that are going to be serving communion to come up as well and prepare. It says in Matthew 5, 13 to 15, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? 
It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It goes on in another version. It says in the Message Bible, and I want to read this as well because it's so good. It says this, Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, and as, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a basket, do you? For I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop and on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven.